Hello all, and welcome to this episode of No Home for Heroes. No Home for Heroes explores history's military mysteries regarding Americans who are missing in action from our past wars. These long-forgotten MIAs are remembered here. Today's episode is titled, What's the Matter, You Wanna Live Forever? And I apologize if my southern accent probably didn't accurately copy that original intent. Today's episode of No Home for Heroes is taken from case file number 488 in the files of the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. I'm your host, Rick Stone, and this is another great true story from our vault of history's military mysteries. No Home for Heroes is a trademark production sponsored by the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation. For more information on the foundation, visit our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. If you're hearing this as a preview of No Home for Heroes, we invite you to listen to the complete podcast on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform or streaming platform that you prefer. We can warn you right up front that today's mystery is not yet solved, but it involves a young Marine from a small town in Mississippi who accepted his sergeant's challenge to climb over a wall, only to vanish into history. But don't give up just yet. We're still on the case. We dedicate this episode to our loyal listeners in the big city of Eupora, Mississippi, all 2,197 of you. I wonder how many of you in Eupora know that your town has a real-life American hero that should be in your own community's history books. Think about that a little bit. But for right now, on with our show. Private Ferris Gilbert Byrd was sworn in, or, well, he really wasn't sworn in. He was born in Eupora, Mississippi, as one of six children born to William H. and Vera Byrd. Ferris's father was employed as a mechanic in an auto garage in 1930, and his mother worked as a household helper in 1940. At the time of the 1940 census, Ferris was living with his mother, three brothers, and two sisters on Matson Road in Coahoma County, Mississippi. Ferris's father is not listed as being in the family in 1940. The census notes that Ferris only completed the third grade in school, but inexplicably notes that he was 15 years of age and was still attending school at the time of the census. If you look at Ferris's signature on his military records, it's pretty clear that he had difficulty even writing his own name. Ferris was accepted for enlistment in the United States Marine Corps Reserves in Greenwood, Mississippi, and he was formally sworn in at Jackson, Mississippi on 28 July 1942. The term of his enlistment was for the, quote, duration of the national emergency. Private Byrd listed his mother, Vera Lee Byrd of Eupora, Mississippi, as his next of kin. He completed all the necessary paperwork for his mom to receive U.S. government life insurance if he didn't come home. Private Byrd was unmarried, and he's listed in his military records as having brown eyes and a ruddy complexion. His official USMC photograph contains a chart that confirms his listed height of 70 and a half inches. That's five foot. Ten and a half inches. <laughs> His photo also notes 
that he had a pair of ears that would have made an elephant proud. Private Bird's medical records indicate that he had no previous bone fractures, breaks, major scars, or tattoos. He had 20-20 eyesight in both eyes, and, as a real surprise, only two dental fillings in his entire profile. Private Bird completed his Marine Corps basic training as a member of the 5th Recruit Battalion in San Diego, California. And after graduation from basic training on 19 September 1942, Private Bird was assigned to the Headquarters Company, Signals Battalion, at Camp Elliott, San Diego, California. On 23 October 1942, Private Bird was transferred to the 3rd Signal Company, Headquarters Battalion, 3rd Marine Division at Camp Elliott. And on 25 January 1943, he was transferred to the 14th Replacement Battalion in San Diego. He was soon assigned to D Company Infantry Battalion at the Training Center in Camp Elliott on 14 April 1943. And then, ladies and gentlemen, a little bit of a glitch in Private Bird's Road was found. On 7 June 1943, Private Bird was listed as absent off leave, AOL, which means that he had some leave, but he just didn't come back from it. He remained in this status almost a month until he surrendered as a straggler at the Marine Barracks and the Naval Training Center in Great Lakes, Illinois, on 1 July 1943. Why he was a thousand miles away from his base in California all the way in Illinois and nowhere near his home in Mississippi is one of the many mysteries about Private Bird's case. Well, after he surrendered, Private Bird was transported by train under guard back to San Diego where he was tried by courts martial on 15 July 1943 and he was convicted. He was sentenced to two months' confinement in the Camp Elliott Brig, which is their word for jail, the Marine Corps' word for jail, and a loss of pay of $25 per month for four months. Since he was only making less than $50 a month, that was a lot of money to lose. And yes, you probably just heard Ruby the dog emphasize that losing half your pay for a month really hurt. For reasons that are also a mystery, Private Bird served only two weeks of his sentence before being released and transferred to the 24th Replacement Battalion to be designated for shipment to New Zealand. In New Zealand, Private Bird was assigned to the Headquarters and Service Company, 2nd Marines, on 17 August 1943. Private Bird's new unit was encamped in Cap McKay's Crossing in New Zealand while undergoing a period of rest, refit, and training in preparation for the invasion of Tarawa. On 9 October 1943, Private Bird was transferred to A Company, Alpha Company, 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines. Private Bird and his company embarked aboard the USS Harry Lee on 17 October 1943 for a period of amphibious landing training along the New Zealand coast. <laughs> the Harry Lee was known by its crew as the, quote, Leaning Lee because it has a, had a perpetual starboard list that could never seem to be corrected. On 1 November 1943, Private Bird and his unit departed Wellington on board the Harry Lee for additional amphibious training in New Hebrides Islands before continuing on to Tarawa. At Tarawa, Private Bird's company approached Red Beach 2, 
at about oh, 10.30 in the morning on the first day of the invasion, 20 November 1943. Due to the topography of their designated landing area, heavy fire was directed against them by Japanese defenders on both Red Beach 2 and to their right on Red Beach 1. Four of the company's six officers were quickly wounded or killed. Those members of Private Bird's company who did safely reach the shore quickly took refuge behind a coconut log seawall and awaited reinforcements from B Company and C Company before they began attacking inland against strong opposition by the Japanese defenders. Orders were given to Private Bird's company to begin attacking inland, but most of the men were hesitant to move into that kind of fire from behind the protection of their seawall. A Company's first sergeant, Wilbur Burgess, began berating the members of his unit to attack. His chastisements included the famous line, What's the matter? You want to live forever? Hearing this, Private Bird charged over the seawall directly into Japanese fire. Soon, his company made significant advances along the flat Japanese airfield and into a number of log aircraft revetments along the taxiway. Between 40 and 60 members of Private Bird's company occupied scattered positions between the center of the triangle formed by the main airfield and the Northwest Aircraft Taxiway. Somewhere along the way, probably 100 to 150 yards, 18-year-old Ferris Gilbert Bird of Eupora, Mississippi, caught a Japanese bullet to the head and fell face down into the sand. As the tide of battle rolled over his body, Private Bird was simply lost. Private Bird's case remained substantially dormant in his government files until I completed an official investigative report of all the Tarawa unknowns while a member of the Department of Defense in 2011 and 2012. Later investigations by the Chief Rick Stone and Family Charitable Foundation have determined that Private Bird is a most likely match to only one unknown previously buried in the Punchbowl Cemetery in Honolulu, Hawaii. And he's a lower grade possible match to two other unknowns. Unfortunately, the Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command and the Defense POW-MIA Accounting Agency did not act on recommendations to exhume these unknowns and identify them using DNA technology or, quote, voodoo science, end quote, as the Joint POW-MIA Accounting Command Lab called it, until October 2016, when the Tarawa unknowns finally began to be exhumed. The average time for identification after remains are received in the DPAA, that's the Defense POW-MIA Accounting Agency Laboratory, is reported by an internal analysis to be 11 years. 11 years. I'm still shaken by that statistic no matter how many times I read it. 31 members of Private Bird's company were ultimately listed as killed in action. 13 of these individuals, including Private Bird, have never been recovered and never been identified. All 13 are in unresolved status to this day. So where is Private Bird today? Well, in the final analysis... The preponderance of the evidence indicate that Private Bird was killed after he reached shore on Tarawa. 
It is likely that Private Berg was given a burial on Tarawa, perhaps in a hastily prepared grave while his unit was under fire, and that his head wound prevented specific identification later during the recovery of the dead after the battle. If Private Ferris Gilbert Berg is not one of the matches to the unknowns listed in all of our reports to the government, or one of the recent recoveries from Tarawa that DPAA and their laboratory has not yet been able to identify, it is probable that Private Bird lies in an undiscovered grave on Tarawa to this day, awaiting discovery, identification, and return home to his family in Eupora. Make a note, Eupora, and plan for a big homecoming for your hometown hero. Thank you for listening to this incredible but true episode of No Home for Heroes. Today's episode was inspired from the investigative case files of the Chief Rickstone and Family Charitable Foundation. We hope you've enjoyed today's production, and we invite you to check out our other episodes on Apple Podcasts or TuneIn Radio Podcast, or whichever platform you like to listen to podcasts. We greatly appreciate your comments, and a special link is available for you to contact us on our website at www.chiefrickstone.com. We again thank you for your support of our mission to provide information to the families of missing American servicemen and missing American servicewomen. Every assistance counts, and you do make a difference. Until next time, be careful, be safe. And wishing you fair winds and following seas, I'm your host, Rick Stone, reminding you that poor is the nation that has no heroes, but shameful is the nation that, having heroes, forgets them.